0: Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and in this fortnightly podcast series I talk to filmmakers about their documentaries both in terms of the subjects they choose and the way in which they fund, craft and distribute their work. In this episode I'm delighted to speak to Rick Burns about his feature doc Oliver Sacks His Own Life which has played already in cinemas and is now widely available across Video On Demand. Oliver Sacks' His Own Life explores the life and work of the legendary neurologist and storyteller as he shares intimate details of his battles with drug addiction, homophobia, and a medical establishment that accepted his work only decades after the fact. It's a fascinating film about a true innovator and a beautiful human being. Here's the trailer. I first saw my analyst of 66. We are now in our 50th year we're beginning to get somewhere.
1: Please welcome Dr. Oliver Sacks. He was the first major intellectual who spoke about diseases to the general public in a way that they could understand.
0: His writing brought back a central aspect of medicine that treat the person and not the disease. Life threw so many things at him, some of which he brought on himself, he was the first to admit. It was at that time they discovered that he was gay. Where do you go where your mother calls you an abomination? You go to San Francisco and stop writing home. From an early age, it was understood that I was going to be a doctor. My brother Michael was diagnosed as schizophrenic. I became terrified for him. Michael was one of the reasons Oliver did what he did. Much of my life has been spent trying to imagine what it's like to be another human being. His great gift was storytelling about the human condition in a medical context, emphasizing the fact that they saw the world in different ways. He would tell these stories so well that people who are brave, lonely, and left out are storied back into the world. Oliver was absolutely dismissed by fellow neurologists. He had his critics. For someone to say that he exploited his patients, I think that's absolutely wrong. Are you a doctor first and then a writer? The real answer is that I'm both, and in important ways, they lend together. Oliver never lost that sense of wonder. 10 days before he died, he was writing. I dare not tell you what I think thinking. <laughs> People think he's saying, look at the others. He's not saying that. He's saying, look at us. Rick Burns, thanks a million for joining me. Um, just to start off with, could you give me in your own words what the film is about and how it came to be?
1: Right. I mean, the, the, um, in early 2015, um, Oliver Sacks' remarkable colleague, Kate Edgerns, who I met once, who was originally a book editor and had come to Oliver in the 1980s to salvage a manuscript which he was floundering in and stayed for the rest of his life, and Oliver became Kate Edgar's career. And Kate called and said, I have bad news. Oliver, my, I had never met, um, has a uh, mortal illness and probably just six months to live. And would you guys come in and start filming him? And so without, you know, any more ado than that, we were within weeks in Oliver Sacks flat in Greenwich Village um, on February 9th a Monday, 2015, um, and started filming. First, first interview lasted five days, Monday through Friday that week. Where, you know, I, I'd met him briefly the week before to kind of like prep and plan a little bit, but um, you know, he was essentially indefatigable, though dying of cancer, um, and uh, we had the by kind of leaping into the deep end of the deep pool that is Oliver, that was Oliver. Um, It was the best way to do it. Um, And what emerged from that first filming um, those 60 hours. And then more filming we were able to do in April of 2015 and June of 2015, at which point Oliver kind of retreated into closely, his close, you know, the family he had made for himself, and did indeed die on August 30th, 2015. What emerged from that was, you know, what had been was a remarkable experience, um, where Oliver had only in the last few years of his life decided to come to terms publicly with the things that had been most difficult for him: um, his sexuality, which was carefully guarded. He was a closeted gay man for most of his life. Um, His struggles with family, um, with any figure of authority he ever came into contact with, he was fired from every job he ever had. Um, And his attempt to, you know, what somebody else said in a different circumstance, Eugene O'Neill's life, the kind of seeking flight that Oliver was engaged in, both running from himself and trying to find himself, which was a lifelong undertaking. Um, And he he knew deep down that finding a way to come to terms with his sexuality um, in a meaningful way was crucial and with these other torments and tribulations. And he had written a book but not yet published it when we did the interview, a remarkable memoir um, on the move whose pub date was moved up so that he could see it before he died. in which he grappled with these things. And then there was sitting down with us um, and talking about it. And what emerged, I mean, Ross, <laughs> as, you, as I know you're aware, these processes of making films are humblingly, if not humiliatingly, challenging each time out. Um, let's just say they don't make themselves. But what really emerged as 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 this film you know, kind of increasingly, the way films do, tells you what it must be. And then if you're obedient enough, you'll follow those dicta. Was this a story about a man towards the end of his life, looking back over where he came from and what he thought was meaningful about what he'd done? Born 1933 and in the event died 2015. It was also a story of that same person, Grapp, facing death and grappling with his mortality. And obviously that second story powerfully impacted how he was looking at his whole life. Um, You know, nothing quite focuses your mind and feelings quite so much. Um, And at a certain point, the facing of his death, imminent death, um, became the same thing as the biographical story he and we were seeking to tell. And once we got to the point where we understood how simply and purely that was the story we were there to tell, the film, you know, after only three or four years of working on it, you know, began to fall, began to fall to, in place. Um, and I think that at its heart, um, the tremendous coherence, which was in Oliver Sachs' life and work, and thinking and writing, I hope, came through and that we were able to kind of penetrate to what that coherence is. It is not given to all of us to have coherence in our lives. Most of us, myself included, you know, are content inevitably, if we can be, to just sort of lead the kind of flotsam, jetsam existence, but Oliver was not that. There was turbulence, there was contradiction and deep complexity and torment. But at the center of it all was, you know, a human being wonderstruck from his earliest age by what it is to be, as he put it in a beautiful late essay that was published in the New York Times the week after we filmed him, a thinking animal, a sentient being on this beautiful planet to have had the whatever, the random fortune of emerging with a self looking out at the world from your own unique perspective, irreducible to anything else. And I think he was really, you know, a philosopher would call it, you know, consciousness. You know, I think he was within his own consciousness, as we all are within our own, so deeply, deeply moved, troubled, mystified, thrilled by that experience. And it's the red line that runs through his entire existence and his work you know he's so always gripped by what it is to have this mysterious experience that after all only each of us has access to and we spend our lives trying to communicate it to others as they do to us and that's after all what Oliver's life was and it was that way as a writer as a human being as a clinician as someone who dealt with others who were locked in and Oliver's I think fundamental insight is that in some sense we're all locked in and all capable of connecting and it might be difficult but we can we can do that which makes his life in a certain way a kind of comedy in the classical sense he's committed to finding those moments of connection however dark and difficult and trapped any of us might be
0: and in the documentary as you say it, it took some time maybe to f- figure out how to tell that, and one of the things I think that you do very well is you cede the floor to this extraordinary remarkable person and and allow them to, in mostly to tell their own story through their own words. He is extraordinary and I wonder for you what it was like having not met him to suddenly be thrown into this because a lot of the time when you go to make a documentary maybe you have a development period or you take some time to think about this and I imagine it wasn't the only thing that you had on your desk at the time to suddenly almost be compelled to make this film about this amazing person. What was that experience like in finding your way into it and and realizing this is something that you absolutely have to do?
1: Yeah, it was really, um, um, we didn't have any research and development, period. Um, maybe that's a good thing, because maybe what happens is that being pulled suddenly into a maelstrom, not entirely of your own devising, might actually then pull you know any given filmmaker out of her or himself a little bit more than they might be if they had the kind of calm, sort of sit back and magisterially say, and my next project will be, and I, you know, I, so I, I thank Oliver and Kate for having, to whatever degree possible, helped, you know, reduce the amount of inevitable banal self-repetition that takes place in the course of one's work. But, you know, I, I think that Oliver created a remarkable persona for himself in his writing and in his lectures. Um, and it was not a mask, really, although you know, persona or masks of some kind, but they're how we exist in public and Oliver's mask really just like the Wizard of Oz said, pay no attention to that man behind the writing because you've got all you need to know. He is, um, he's empathetic, warm, obviously incredibly educated and brilliant and sensitive and sharp. Um, and therefore the point really isn't about him. It's about, these remarkable human beings who have been his patients and sometimes colleagues. And, um, so to meet Oliver was to instantaneously not have to have that persona ripped away, but to realize, Oh my God, it sits in a supple way on a vastly complex human being. Um, and so the first thing is you can feel the ship of your own awareness kind of like moving around on the surface of Oliver going, wow, um, this co- remarkable, as all his friends, you know, remarkable set of apparently contradictory qualities, deeply, deeply shy and then massively exuberantly self-expressive, um, you know, a very, very, very polite and fastidious. And then. Um, let, let's say, not so much vulgar, but self-expressive in a way that no one will ever, who sees this film, forget Orange Jello. Um, o so, so you sort of go like, wow, what is he? Is he a kind of reserved Englishman? Is he a kind of a helplessly impulsive child? And he somehow seems, all those things seem to have coexisted. It, it's that sense that you began to get immediately with Oliver and then begin to sort of adjust. Right, of course, the instrument that was Oliver Sacks, capable of once you know the basic outlines of it, that, that surviving the turmoil of his own life. But but in addition to that, and, and obviously as important and crucial for Oliver, to to have this ability to be preternaturally sensitive to what's going on inside somebody else, um, and. To understand that as an act of science, that you know, coming up as he did at a time when it was all about you know controlled experiments and what you could observe and what you could measure, um, very difficult to control, observe, and measure consciousness. What it what it feels like to be another human being, and Oliver's absolute conviction was that all the kind of neuroatypical circumstances that he became absorbed in, people who've been sort of in a state of semi-suspended animation for four decades, the awakenings patients, autistic people, or people called autistic, Touretteurs, etc., people who have been damaged or diseased in any one of a of really myriad set of ways, that there was a conscious temporality. There was a kind of a tonality of being associated with that. And that that tonality was data. You could not understand. It wasn't merely like, where's the lesion? Or what's the chemical imbalance? Or what could be measured in a flicker on an MRI? But rather, not that those things aren't important, but that in the midst of all that, what does it feel like? What is it to be this person? Or as his wonderful friend, the writer Lawrence Weschler said, you know, his question is, how are you? How do you be? And it took this neuroscientific community a long time to agree with Oliver that what he was talking about was either science or that the insights which he gathered painstakingly, wrote up first as medical reports and then as books, were a crucial form of data. So it wasn't until the end of the 20th century, long after he had by the 1980s begun to create the Oliver Sacks you and I know, that people within the neurological community, not just, you know, any people, Francis Crick, who, having with James Watson discovered the you know uh you know the double helical t- structure of DNA, went on to go what are the neural correlates of consciousness and spend the rest of his Crick's life trying to answer that question but when Francis Crick and his younger colleague Christoph Koch, who became a good friend of Oliver's and interviewed in the film, found Oliver, looked at his work, including his earliest book Migraines: Nobody reads migraine um were so struck that things that they had reached kind of a provisional theoretical sense of with respect to how consciousness is constructed in the brain and not just of human beings could see data in Oliver's book on migraines. Oh, right. You know, motion, time, the flow of duration is not, you know, given. It's constructed in the brain in the nervous system by, as Crick and Cox thought, discrete frames or percepts, which then are scanned for the differences among them, which differences become interpreted as motion, duration, time. Well, Oliver was already in migraine, seeing how people in some migraine conditions were having what he called cinematic vision, that they saw things, but they were in discrete frames. So in that, you know, that pathological circumstance, Oliver was sensing what it was to be someone having a certain kind of migraine experience, entirely tallying with the theoretical insights of the greatest scientists of the last part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. Crick, Koch, Gerald Edelman. Um, So that... You know, hence that red line that kind of runs through his work. It's always really about whether from the most kind of strictly scientific point of view or from just how does it feel? How do you how do you feel? And his wonder to be thrown into someone who had the 19th century natural historian's curiosity and to some degree the ability of a Darwin you know, or, or maybe later a Freud. Tr- exploring the w- world of what it means to be a sentient being, a thinking animal. Wow, what a, what a life, you know, what a life's work. And to see how closely r- related that work was to the deepest, you know, kind of impulses he had, experiences that he had had dark and bright, And to see his commitment as a person to finding the accommodation with yourself and other people that allow you to find strength and move on and move forward. So though though he was dealing with people, including in some sense himself, who could be thought of as woefully challenged, he was so struck. By the creative capacity of these mechanisms, which are us, to evolve, negotiate difficulties, find new solutions, so that, as some of his patients said, Lowell Handler, um, mm-hmm. who is a Tourtor, has Tourette's, a wonderful photographer and a longtime friend now of Oliver's, you know, Oliver showed him how he wasn't less than normal, he was more than normal. Um, that people who are deaf and mute aren't using an enormous amount of their brains, other, which would otherwise be given over to sound uh, auditory interpretation. Man, is that working, you know, in all sorts of ways. And so that the expressiveness, which we see in anyone who does sign language, um, is an expressiveness which is akin to language. It is a language. But man, it's using all sorts of things in a completely different way that we we language speakers, we we tongueers, we don't we don't can even begin to think what that's going on with that, and so that there are whole continents of neural possibility, which can open up um, under even what seem to be what are grievously difficult circumstances. But I think in the end he didn't feel he knew obviously there are differences between someone who is struggling with some very very difficult neurological. Condition. But I think he felt in some sense we're all struggling with a very, very difficult neurological condition. And that finding ways to articulate what that what that feels like, and then to exchange that articulation among ourselves. Which is why in the same essay which appeared in the Times I referred to, he said, you know, that he's most of all grateful because he's had that special intercourse. The intercourse of writers and readers, which was both a way of writing and having a living. It was also a form of therapy, as again, let Lawrence Weschler put it, or as his friend Robert Krolwich, the journalist, put it. As his friend Lawrence Weschler put it, and Robert Krolwich put it, he was storying people back into the world. And that narrative, as Ren said, was a form of therapy. A way of kind of provisionally arriving at a self-understanding which could be a form of connection. Um, And so, was he a popularizer of complex and maybe even arcane medical circumstances? I guess. But I think that more importantly, his the fruits of that intercourse, which was initially between a doctor and a patient and then became between a writer and a reader, was a way of storing our all of ourselves back into the world and a form of therapy, a form of accommodation. you know and accommodation is such a great word, you know it's a way of you know kind of living within. Um, and Oliver was committed to living within, which is why I think, at the end, you know, Ren Weschler also said, you know, Oliver gave a master class in dying. He knew the way, certainly scientists know, um, realists of all kinds know that, you know, this was it. It was over. He also knew that that special sentience which had had a beginning, was going to end. That you weren't going to get the one without the other. And he had no—it's not that he had no anxiety about dying. He saw absolutely that there was no other choice, and that no no dream of some other way it was going to work. And so he really wanted to confront his mortality directly and positively and gracefully. And he did. And so I think his last gift, you know, out of this remarkable 82-year career, was to create a record of his final, you know, weeks and months. Um, And to see two days before he died and have our cameras see his partner, Billy Hayes, you know, showed us, and Kate, remarkable notebooks of Oliver's endlessly writing. As he said, I was really most at home thinking, writing. Um, And at a certain point, two days before he died, the pen ran out of steam. It It was a spidery line for a number of days before that, and then became, you know, so then to see at that moment where like, that's, that was it, you know, halfway down the right-hand page of this red-lined notebook. I found that just remarkably moving to see the clarity and coherence he'd arrived at for himself. And you know, his friends knew him, loved him, could be deeply exasperated by him. He was absorbed and cantankerous, and you know, helplessly Oliver Sacks. Um, but boy, they all said he became so purely, serenely Oliver, not a different person, but more of whom he had always been in such a lovely and focused way. Um, and that too, I think everyone who allowed all the people who saw him in his final weeks, Christoph Koch, great neurologist, Isabel Rapin, Paul Theroux, the writer, you know, um, and many, many people who saw him in his final, you know, couple months and weeks just were astonished how lovely it was to be with him. How, you know, Paul Theroux described, you know, and what are you writing about, Oliver? This is 10 days before he died. I'm writing about creativity. You know, that's who who would not take enormous courage and sustenance from <laughs> complicated uh, kid from north london you know family of orthodox jews i I love the fact that he was an atheist english orthodox jewish homosexual (laughs) which meant that you know he was going to basically it was inevitable he was going to live his life out in new york city Um, and uh, without ever getting citizenship he was a citizen of this kind of place which is New York um, in any case
0: Can I ask you then and I think you're in New York too obviously he wasn't too far away you in making this film had a kind of ticking clock in that you knew that you know he was going to pass probably within six months or a year that you may have a limited number of opportunities to spend time with him that can sometimes happen, either known or unknown, but it presumably creates a certain type of pressure or a certain type of questioning of yourself to wonder what is it I actually want to focus on in the little time I get with this person. How did you think about that and, and address that?
1: You know, it was a project that was so, that began with an immediate affirmation. Yes, we'll do this, Kate. Edgar, we'll come in. And, you know, the circumstances were, you know, for me, unique in the course of making a film, for me, um, where, you know, you're dealing with someone at, at, at the major crossroads of their life. So a sense of deep, deep responsibility um, meant that, you know, sure, no research or development, but you know what, we're there, our commitment our responsibility is to get this right, how whatever that means. And, you know, we were so fortunate to have that 120-hour first interview and then to have more time in April and June where we could be with him, not just in his flat, but, you know, in places that were important to him. Um, you know, in Beth Abraham Hospital in the Bronx where we, he'd done the, critical work with the Awakenings patients in the late 60s and early 70s, which was transformative for Oliver for a variety of reasons. Or to go to places like the Botanical Gardens. In certain ways, to be able to go with him and see a patient in an extraordinary residential um, hospice kind of place in in Queens, Little Sisters, where he saw Peter Caporelli, who was all but paralyzed. And to watch Oliver with a patient who was okay that we were filming him from Mr. Caparelli's point of view, it's just incredible. You saw this kind of like the way he touched him, the way he talked with him, his interaction with him. You saw this kind of the antenna that was Oliver kind of taking in all this information tenderly. So they also had a kind of a interpersonal beauty to it. But could see that he was also feeling what the texture of you know muscle and you know tonality were, and so that every when he was with his patients, as when he was writing, he was most purely open and kind of pulling in information and remarkably objective, remarkably unsentimental, filled filled with feeling, but not. Uh, not being nostalgic or grieving, but rather just feeling and using one's feeling instrument as a way of understanding and communicating. So if we hadn't had those 90-some hours, we wouldn't have had the data to make our film. Um, you know, we supplemented it with some 25 interviews with people close to Oliver, you know, in the year and a half after he died. But I think that Oliver, for whatever reasons, and Kate and Billy, Bill Hayes, trusted us. And they understood that we were going to have, you know, know, editorial control. Um, And that, after all, we were making the film, whether we had the control or not. And it was really so beautiful and moving to me that what there was was just a tremendous basic trust. And I mean, we had a dialogue with Bill and Kate and many people during and long after Oliver died, thinking, talking, questioning, sharing it with them cuts of the film, which was a huge, huge um, asset to the film um, and gave us a huge advantage because they never lost that trust, but they never lost their own kind of critical insight and like, hmm, I don't think we got that right, um, and with some issues of Oliver, it could be very difficult, you know. I think one of the biggest challenges with Oliver was he was such an extreme personality. You could wonder, you know, was he about to kind of fly off the margins and edges of his own sense of, you know, decorum, you know, his own personality? Was he telling the truth? Um, which he was sometimes accused of, you know, doctrine. You know, I can't tell you, Ross, how much my colleagues and I thought about and worried about. Where's the line between true and false, or you know, accurate or exaggerated? And we pressed it and pressed it and pressed it. And I'll tell you, I became convinced of Oliver's deep commitment to truth and accuracy, as he says in the very beginning of the film. Maybe a little tuning here and there, you know, in what he wrote, uh, which was just to be to say he's a writer. You know, it's not a perfect imprint of reality; it's an interpretation. But he stood by, um, and I would stand by, the, the accuracy and the commitment to um, reality and truth, which was essentially scientific and natural historic. Um, so, you know, once we found, as is always the case, once we found the simplicity of what this film wanted to be, the story of a man's life as he's confronting his own death. It became a way in which you, um, as I said before, the film didn't make itself, but that became the track within which we understood how to leave things out, how to, you know, emphasize certain things. And for me, what I feel most grateful about in the film and, and and most thrilled by is the way the degree to which whatever degree that is it's a record of the interiority of the people who you see on camera so that the the moments that mean most to me in the film are moments when Oliver's looking aside and looking down and thinking for a second and you're watching somebody thinking and feeling and then Bill says what are you thinking about Oliver you know, and then you find out about orange jello that or we're just shots of our crew and his friends leaping at the end of a day's filming, our last of that first five days. So that, you know, we only have access to our own interiority, but sometimes in language, sometimes in film, sometimes in a variety of media, you're able to understand through what you see and hear what's happening that you can't see and hear. And that interiority of this cohort of people who are Oliver's self-created family was remarkable both to be around but also that they would let themselves be seen and be felt and i think that that's the it's it's a record of the collective inner lives of you know a couple dozen people with oliver sacks central um who spoke and felt so genuinely Um, so you know that's a we're all of us hiding (laughs) You know, as well as all of us locked in. And um, it was a remarkable experience to be with people who are willing to both understand and accept that as the given, but also to be themselves um, for what's after all a kind of created and for many of us self conscious experience. You know, the camera's rolling and the sound man's moving around, and, you know, but they just basically waved that away. and when Oliver looked up from a passage of reading this essay announcing his mortality in the Times, published the week after we did the filming. You know, my cameraman, Buddy Squires, I've known him since 1982, is in tears behind the camera. Met Oliver five days ago. So there's just this kind of, what can you say, this kind of, to convene around our, One's common humanity with other people, honestly, with some combination of restraint, but also being there—that's that's incredible. Um, so, you know, there's an incredible, long dead humorist for the New Yorker, S. J. Perelman, who famously said of himself, writing in the third person about himself, "They broke the mold before they made him." You know. No question. Oliver's Oliver's in that that camp. Um and, and thank God because what came out of that beautiful fractured mold was something that was really you know, groundbreaking and is permanently there. His colleague you know, neuroscientist Christoph Cox said, you know, Oliver's writings will be around a thousand years from now. Because we don't have any other record of what it was to feel and be in these remarkable range of neuroatypical ways, that that data is a part of the permanent human record. Um, you know, like Pliny was Cox example. You know, or Thucydides. You know, who was all but in the war. You know, so Oliver was in the war, and he left a record that's meaningful. That people will be looking at for a very, very long time, as well as just enjoy. You know, these are great. You know, like Freud's essays. You know, this case or that case. You know, these are really remarkable. And to the people who criticized Oliver, you know, um, the disabilities activist Tom Shakespeare famously wrote of Oliver. Um, He's the man who mistook his patience for a literary career, you know, rhyming off Oliver's book, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. It's hard to find the patient of Oliver's. It's actually impossible. Who shares that conviction? It was in Temple Grandin, you know, incredible animal behaviorist and autistic, and famously so, an enormous amount of work. Just said, it really kind of blew my mind how well Oliver understood me. And you can see as he's pulling his beard affectionately, like he's her own little goat, you know, the comfort and pleasure she took in the friendship they evolved. That was pretty much business as usual between Oliver Sacks and his patients. Did he make a literary career out of it? Yeah, and thank God.
0: Can I ask you then that you then are creating a document as well of his life, you know, that hopefully... People who, who who want to look back at that at a later point can, can find and, and so on. But at a certain point in, in the making of this film, he, he died. And then you had to almost, I imagine, begin again. You know, you say, OK, okay we've captured what we could of Oliver. Now what? Was, was that how it evolved? And, and what was the process of finding that story?
1: The only person other than the people who were in the room as we were filming Oliver, wherever that was during the the months we had with him. The only person we kind of interviewed in a kind of conventional way, um, sitting him down was Lawrence Weschler, the wonderful writer. So when Oliver died, we began the process of interviewing the people who seemed like they would be most important to do an interview with. And we got to basically all of them and had to stop at some point family members, nephews, um, nieces, his partner, Bill Hayes, such a huge part of the story since Oliver was so tormented and celibate for 35 of Isabelle years before finding Billy at the very end. And so, you know, kind of piecing together through interviews and filming in various places, And filming his library, filming the elements, you know, he collected, as is revealed in the film, but he revealed it in many other places. He collected, uh, you know, one of the elements in the periodic table for every year he was. So if iridium is 77, he has to have iridium by the time he's 77. You know, who does that? Um, But that was very, very like Oliver. Um, And so to be able to see the artifacts of Oliver's life like that, the books, the elements, the chemicals, the periodic tables he had, you know, he was obsessed with the periodic table Because his obsession was really not just about kind of like neurology. He dealt with what his colleague Christoph Koch described as, you know, there were the three fundamental questions which science addresses, Koch said. Kind of effortlessly and magnificently for us in a piece of film that didn't make it in. Science addresses three fundamental questions Why is there something rather than nothing? What is the origin of life? And what's the origin of consciousness? Three questions, as he summarized, all questions of Genesis. Oliver was equally obsessed with all, hence the periodic table, hence his love of ferns or lemurs or, you know, animals of all kinds, mosses, um, and human beings, and, you know, they're, they're multifarious consciousnesses, and he saw them as all interrelated. And so what we discovered in interviewing people was that, you know, you were going to find the natural scientists and the physicists and the neurologists and the biologists and the botanists and the Patients and the family members, because those were all, and the friends and the writers, because those were all part of the web that Oliver was. And in some sense, the beauty of that inextricable interconnection among those attempts to answer those three fundamental questions um, characterized, in a sense, of Oliver's life. So, sure, we knew him as the writer about neuroatypical conditions, also a doctor. But, you know, the kind of warp and woof underneath it all or running through it all. we had just this, such a beautiful texture which was not imposed on his life but emerged by his always evolving understanding of the world and his attempts to grapple with those three questions. Um, and I think we got to the point where we kind of understood intuitively what I'm babbling about now and then understood that Our task, in some sense, was to create a story, too, as you so rightly said. Um, And so, you know, we, not that Oliver Sacks needed to be storied back into the world, but this account of who he was up to and past his death on August 30th, 2015, um, was going to be something that that was, in a sense, our responsibility.
0: It also kind of reiterates the amount of material that you had i mean 90 hours of interviews tw- you know 90 hours of interviews with him alone or footage 25 other interviews all of these books incredible number of photos in the documentary and also footage you know he, he filmed so much of his work and uh, you know it, it's not unusual for a documentary to take four years to make and it's definitely not unusual when you have that level of material but also i suppose the after that initial period you had to kind of come up with a way of thinking, you know how are we going to get this out into the world who, who and, and you know the credits of this documentary, some of the exact producers they're a who's who of, of documentary filmmaking of today you know so it, it was interesting to think of it on one level as this kind of experience that you had within a several months where you and your crew spent time with him and then beyond that making it into this film that would go out into the world. What, what was going on there in terms of deciding who to connect with to, to bring this film out and, and make sure that it meets the biggest audience possible? God, you know, I'm so glad you yes, asked that. It's
1: just kind of rattling on, and it it's so crucial. Um, you know, there, I was, um, the people who made this film, you know, Geraldine Dreyfus, Julie Goldman, Chris Clemens, Rocky Collins, you know, didn't just name a few you know, people from, you know, Julie and Chris, you know, some of the best uh, independent documentary filmmakers, Rocky Collins, you know, um, uh, Gerilyn Dreyfus is kind of legendary in the independent documentary film community in this country. It sits right in the middle of it. And you know what? Gerilyn and Julie said to me early on, she said, you know, Rick, this is an opportunity to really make something different, you know, by which, you know, I didn't, you know, bristle much at the thought that what they're saying is like, you know, don't do the same old thing, but they were right. You know, this was an opportunity, but you know what, Ross, sure enough, you know, you saddle up the old horse and he begins to head out to the same pastures. And so a lot of the process of making this film was the struggle with Julie and Chris and Gerald and Rocky and, and really another whole tier of people from, you know, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and, you know, the Simons Foundation and Welcome Trust and many, many other people, which I really have to thank enormously. Welcome Trust in in England, you know, Lucy McDowell, just they were really early supporters and extraordinarily keen viewers of early versions of the script. And to have that kind of team of people you know, and I pissed and moaned, you know, uh, when people would say, no, you know, that's not the way to begin it. Like, Whose fucking film is it? And so, You know, so all those kind of normal, you know, two-year-old ways in which filmmakers so frequently feel and behave. But the fact was is that the film, as it's completed, came out of the friction of these strong-minded people among us all who were saying, you know what? Sorry, pal, you know. You don't know it, but you kind of either went off the rails or took a shortcut or have done something. I know you love it, but it's just not worth it. It's redundant. And in the, you know, routinely ferocious scrimmage that goes on when you're lucky enough to have incredibly talented people with you. You know, my wonderful longtime editors, genius in her own right, Leisha and Yu, why you? You know, finally we kind of took in all of this stuff and shut our doors and made a film going we are going to make sure that all of us are on board with this, meaning that whole large group of people. And so I just thank our lucky stars, my lucky stars that there was this incredible team of people, each of whom had that strength of just going like, sorry. You know, it's not. I don't understand why or how or that. And uh, so it was really, you know, there is a big crew of executive producers. um, And the best executive producers kick your tires and send you back to the shop. And, uh, you know, they do it lovingly, but uncompromisingly. And, you know, one of the real dangers of success is that you may come to believe as you get older and your career doesn't tank that you don't need that anymore. Well, I'm here to say you need it all the time. You know, always. And there has to be that, you know, sharp edge of the real, you know, as Kate Edgar described her relationship to Oliver, which he saw, understood immediately, very much was an echo of his mother's relationship with him. Loving, critical, objective, not condemning, you know, but always, you know, holding on to the handrails of reality. You know, that's, I would honestly say that if the film has any quality, it comes from comes from that the process i've just tried to describe you know and uh, each filmmaking process is a little bit the same and, and a lot different from every other one but boy you want to have that you want to have the people who are kicking your tires and sending you back to the shop um, so really grateful for that
0: as a final question then rick you've been at this for a while i've seen some of your films in the past and 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 you know There's few documentary filmmakers that you wouldn't compare to in in terms of the quality of your career. What are the things that you feel that you've learned over those years that you could pass on maybe to an up-and-coming documentary maker or someone about to embark on their first film? Well,
1: that films are chains of events going on inside people. Now, that chain on the light and sound that's happening out here. but in manipulating the light and the sound that's not the chain you're interested in it's how people are feeling in relationships well and it's you know you can see what's up on the screen or hear what's coming out of the speakers. You can't you don't have immediate access to how it how that chain is making people feel. So obviously, People who make films have to be the first member of the audience for their film, long before there's a film, long before they've shot anything. They have to be beginning to respond from the inside out and use that quality. And in that that quality of sentience and perception and feeling, which all of us have, but can't be seen. And, you know, that, quality has to be there from the beginning right through to the end, Um, and that, you know, in that respect, having used words like beginning and end, I don't care how freaking Godardian you are, and I love Godard, Stan Brakhage, every film, short, long, experimental, wildly radical, conventional, is a story. Because there's a process that begins when someone lends their attention, one hopes, to the thing you've made, and it has a beginning, a duration, and an end. So you could try to make it non-narrative, but your narrative would be that you're trying to make it non-narrative. It'll be a narrative. And that you have to find out what your story is. And your story is, what's the thing that people begin to feel? It's not the topic. It's not the subject matter which are crucially related to the story, it's what's happening inside the audience. First of all, you and your colleagues as you make a film. And all the shibbles, kill your babies, you know, don't repeat yourself. Yeah, totally. But that's all because if it's working, the repetition is going to like slam people in the face and send them off the rails. They're going someplace which they partly know and partly don't know, which is what any story is, you know. You're taking off. It's an adventure, and your audience—if it's working—your audience knows they're going someplace, and they don't know all about where they're going to get. And if you throw something in that kind of repeats something unnecessarily, it's a distraction. You know, um, if you don't know where this film is going, it's a distraction. And so, what you want, what you're looking for, is for people who will voluntarily turn it off anytime lend themselves lean into what you're doing and the only way is to follow those you know those simple rules so that's it i mean what's great is that it's embarrassing but i've now exhausted everything i've learned about making films since i began with my older brother ken in the you know early 1980s when i didn't think i was going to be a filmmaker but a professor of english heaven help us. and uh, then, then one day I can remember sitting in Ken's editing room up in Walpole, New Hampshire, when he and his then wife, Amy Seckler, were making a film about the Shakers and seeing how unbelievably powerful was the dissolve from a close to a wide shot of a Shaker broom in, in a shaft of sunlight. And how hugely powerful just that moment It was kind of like a free song, though it was kind of a warm shot. And, you know, pretty much that's when I went like, this is so powerful. And also, it wasn't like making like a series of, you know, kind of like uh, film strips. It involved lots of knowledge, but then this funny thing that filmmakers do, which is to create this inner experience for a wide group of people so that someday let's go down and hopefully... You know, up comes this thing. And people quiet. I love that thing. Where the movie starts and if it works, you can just feel this kind of quieting taking place. And it's not the pressure leaving the room, it's almost the opposite. It's the pressure coming from sustained human attention and emotion. You know, I don't know, I've certainly never done anything more difficult. It's so challenging. It doesn't get easier, but it is so joyous because, and you can pat yourself on the back, if, you know, if, you know, if and when it works like that. But really, the joy is people are having a meaningful collective experience. That's just like you know, you know, family, love creating things and meaningful collective experiences. That's basically it, you know, so you know, that's and if you've got that bee in your bonnet it is a fountain of youth because you may, you know you may, you know lose your hair or get wrinkles or whatever but The joy of basically being continuously project after project engaged in this kind of stuff is like, it's just, it's continually rejuvenating. And, you know, there's a picture of Oliver Sacks in his kind of a white onesie. He must have been three. We use it in the film. It's just bursting. Kind of guileless and totally open grin on his face, big gap in his teeth. You can see a picture of Oliver Sacks at 80. You know, the same gap, the same guileless, open smile. And, you know, we want to grow and mature and evolve, but we want to carry everything along with us. And, you know, I I feel like, you know, following, you know, trying to do any of this work, which involves creating new experience for somebody else. You know, any of us who have the opportunity to are so freaking fortunate um, and man, do we have a responsibility to pour everything we have into it so that we are possibly repaying the gift of attention that another human being is giving is something which they would go, Oh, I'm
0: glad I saw it. Rick Burns, look, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. I really loved the film and best of luck with it. And I hope it works out really well.
1: Thanks so much. It's been a real joy to speak
0: with you. Thanks again to Rick Burns for taking part in the interview. Oliver Sacks, His Own Life, is available on demand in all the usual places across the UK and Ireland. Thanks to Stephen Galvin of Film Ireland for supporting the podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com and thanks to you for listening.